Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. In domestic violence situations, advocates often talk about the needs of the adult. But children are affected too. Last year, more than 1,000 children stayed at a domestic violence shelter, and nearly 70% of them were six years old or younger. Today we hear from the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. The advocacy group has released a report on ways to improve services for children who experience trauma. Coming up, we shift topics to a conversation about zero tolerance, and later we'll find out how a pilot program to divert kids from the juvenile justice system is seeing real success. First joining me now is Karen Jarmok. She's a former state legislator, now the CEO of Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Karen, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I was um, startled when I saw this st- statistic that um, there's a national st- study done um, that indicates that 17.9% of children of all ages have been exposed to intimate partner violence, and that's about 13.6 million children. Tell us what we're seeing here in Connecticut. So we're basically mirroring, I think, what we're seeing across the country, and that is that around 1,200 children a year stay in Connecticut's domestic violence shelters. There are 18 uh, local uh, domestic violence providers in our state. And then there are even thousands more children who are being assisted out in communities. So we know that every family doesn't necessarily need shelter uh, to achieve safety. But for those families that do, what we want to do is make that experience as positive and helpful as possible, uh, especially as it relates to kids, because we don't want kids to be re-traumatized Uh, by coming into a shelter. And how many shelters does the state have again? So we have 18 providers in our state and 15 shelters, and the remaining uh, entities actually do uh, through what we call hotel-motel stays. So they have arrangements with local um, hotels or motels to house families who are at a safety risk. And so if, um, say, a woman is experiencing domestic violence and needs to leave Um, in an emergency, and she has children, do all these shelters have the capacity to take them as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The interesting thing is that we are at a real tipping point here in uh, Connecticut in regard to domestic violence shelters. So we capture data uh, much more deliberately uh, so that we can understand trends and be responsive. And what we know is that uh, right now, shelters, uh, domestic violence shelters in the state of Connecticut are actually at 125% capacity all the time. And so you're probably wondering, what does that mean, right? So how can you be 125% capacity? What it means and and what we saw in these uh, books that we had kids put together who are in shelters is that families are staying in uh, what would normally be a family room, what would normally be a children's playroom. We're changing them over into Uh, living spaces in order to accommodate the great need of families because we know that more families seem to be needing emergency shelter and then they're staying longer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about uh, the kids in these shelters. Um, Many of them, more than almost 70 percent, are six years and younger. Yeah, so we're talking about a very vulnerable population of children, right? So um, how do we 
um, be responsive to kids. And we know that uh, there's many things that we can do as domestic violence providers to build what we call resiliency in children uh, and increase their capacity to cope with the trauma that's happening in their lives. And in particular, uh, there are things that we know. For example, a very uh, trusting, reliable person uh, is helpful to build that resiliency. And so the existence of what we call a child advocate uh, in all of the shelters is, is uh, and it was uh, uh, noticed in these books, uh, is very helpful to the kids. Also, to have a parent, we refer to the parent in the shelters, the non-offending parent. So to have a parent who is uh, there with them and supportive of them and acknowledging their experiences is helpful to them also. You've mentioned these books a couple of times so that our listeners understand what you're talking about. Uh, one of the reasons we invited you today is there's this project that um, the Coalition Against Domestic Violence um, put together, and it's called Through the Eyes of a Child. And these are scrapbooks. Can you explain the project? Yeah, so it's a really simple project that we endeavored into, and I had heard about it at an Office on Violence Against Women conference out in Dallas, Texas, uh, a year or so ago. And basically what we did is we gave kids in shelters uh, portable cameras to take pictures of things that they liked and then also things they didn't like. And then uh, they used those pictures and worked with a child advocate counselor to put those scrapbooks together and to tell their story. And then we pulled together a multidisciplinary group of practitioners and advocates to look through those to glean what can we learn from these children how can we make the experience in shelter as optimal as it can be, especially, as you know, given the very, very limited resources uh, that we have to be providing the service? You brought a couple of scrapbooks with you. So these are pictures that the that, that children, and obviously they're not toddlers, probably six years old and, and older, may have taken of favorite rooms they may have or positive images that they see. Can you tell us what you, yeah, what you so found? Yeah, so what was really interesting to us is when we, we reached out to various practitioners across the state and had them uh, come in and review all of these books, and we spent about a half a day in a very comprehensive way talking through them. And I, what we learned is I think they thought that they were going to see fear amongst these kids and a lot of trauma. And what they learned is that shelters can actually be a very helpful experience for children. It's a place where they feel safe, where they feel loved, where they feel supported. So we learned a bunch of things. Um, a, it's not a scary experience for all kids, um, for the majority of kids. Uh, we also learned, uh, which is what we're seeing in our statistics, that kids are staying longer. So um, I don't think I have the particular book today, but in one of the scrapbooks, you could see that uh, these two brothers who had each done a book, they were there for Halloween, for Thanksgiving, and for Christmas. And you could see that through their pictures and their narrative. We learned that kids like to do things uh, with their families. They like also to do excursions. Um, they want a, a bright, uh, clean environment uh, to be in. And then we also, as we were talking earlier, learned about those things that are challenging for them when they're in a shelter. Such as the heavy doors. Heavy door. You know, sometimes... You might put a bag of trash in a hallway because you know you're going to be taking it out later. But to kids, they don't want to see trash. Um, they don't want to see a dirty oven. And we know that probably exists sometimes because there are so many families living uh, in the shelter and using the same kitchen in the oven, right? The teenagers especially just expressed how difficult it was to be there and not have be able to have a friend over uh, because these shelters are in undisclosed locations. And so um, they didn't seem to be challenged by the length of stay issue. So that was very interesting to us. 
and they they like to be outside. A lot of the kids mentioned or took pictures of things that, you know, they like playscapes and to be outside with friends. What they don't like is rusty bicycles and broken down things. And that is something we need to work on. And I know all the providers are doing so because, as you can imagine, bicycles, playscapes, uh, other things take a lot of wear and tear. And so given very limited resources, how do you address that to make sure that it doesn't feel like a yucky environment for a, a child? This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Karen Jarmok, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Uh, the coalition has released a, a report called Through the Eyes of a Child, where um, they actually reached out to kids who were at uh, state uh, domestic violence shelters and asked them, you know, what were things that um, they could improve on? And the whole idea, Karen, as you said earlier, is that we we know children are resilient, but if there are th- supports that they need, this is a way to figure out, well, how can you reach these children to help them process the trauma they may have experienced or um, to move forward from that? And so you mentioned that there's a child advocate that's in these shelters to work with children and their families. But what happens um, when they leave? Is How does that support follow them, if at all? That's a great question. The uniqueness of domestic violence programs is that Shelter is one component of the work that they're doing, right? And so advocates are not only based in shelters, but they're also based in communities. And so when a family leaves a shelter, it doesn't mean that they're disconnected then from the domestic violence provider. They become what we call a community client. And so um, that family may still need advocacy in court. Uh, They might need advocacy around child care and or education support group, ongoing counseling, and those are all uh, items that you can receive through community programs at domestic violence agencies in the state. And how are these services, um, when we know that the state has limited resources and you rely um, on state assistance, but probably um, support from the community, I mean, how do you guarantee that the kids are getting and the families are getting what they need when the resources are limited? I think it's important to acknowledge is that we're really at a tipping point. It's becoming more and more of a challenge. I think we've hobbled along when there's been decreased funding on a state and federal level, and we're actually engaged in some very strategic conversation right now with uh, the domestic violence providers in the state to think through, are there ways that we might approach our work differently? Because given the current model and the revenue stream, it doesn't support itself. The really shining star to this piece, though, is that Communities are very supportive. So whether you're in Sharon, Connecticut, or Willimantic, or Enfield, or Hartford, or Bridgeport, communities really do embrace and support these programs. And so uh, we find that when providers are trying to raise money for these sort of extra things, because obviously the funding doesn't pay for that playscape or those bicycles, um, it's really community members who, who come through and save the day. And you also put out this report again called Through the Eyes of a Child. What are some recommendations moving forward? So the recommendations uh, speak to the existence of an advocate there for children. Um, And that's honestly something we're struggling with because there's very limited funding for child advocates in our state. Right now, each program has one, but they're only funded for a third of that child advocate, and they have to raise the money for the rest. So um, it's really incumbent upon us to figure out how do we ensure that there is a stable, consistent advocate present for children uh, to support their needs and to be responsive to whatever trauma they might be going through? And then how do we also ensure that the environment that they are staying in is as 
positive as possible. And so those things that kids talked about, you know, in terms of having their own space, a bedroom with their family. Sometimes families have had to double up in a room. So ensuring those exist, um, ensuring that there are sort of group activities. Um, you know, kids wrote about simple things like they liked that there was food available. You know, some kids didn't have that necessarily. So working to ensure also that there is the uh, support for what we call the non-offending parents. So generally it's their mom who's with them. And um, if if the non-offending parent can feel supportive uh, and empowered, that's going to have an impact on the child as well. And what do we know? What has you know evidence and, and data from you know previous groups and, and generations shown us where intimate partner violence, how it affects children if they're not getting that support? Well, it can have lifelong implications. Uh, children often uh, can struggle emotionally. Uh, they can struggle with uh, behavioral challenges, challenges in school, uh, low self-esteem, feelings of guilt that it's their fault. Um, and so it's really important for the domestic violence providers, especially with the kids, and we're talking about 1,200 a year in shelter, um, to offer those interventions early on around support group uh, and linkages to resources and communities that can help create resiliency in that child. And it could be as simple as making sure that child is able to be on that soccer team that was really important to them. Um, or it could be uh, getting help uh, with, with a behavioral health specialist. Uh, and so um, we want to be able to intervene as quickly as possible to ensure that some of those lifelong implications that um, children who are exposed to family violence might uh, experience are mitigated uh, as much as possible. I've been speaking with Karen Jarmok, CEO of the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We'll link to the report through the eyes of a child understanding children's experiences in Connecticut domestic violence shelters. That'll be on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Karen, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, we'll look at the impact of zero tolerance policies in schools. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. School boards across the country often adopt zero-tolerance policies for student behavior, but increasingly over the last two decades, these policies have caused students to be suspended and sometimes expelled for minor issue. What's the wider impact of zero-tolerance? Derek Black joins us via Skype to answer that question. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of Ending Zero-Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. In your book, you start off by sharing examples of students who faced overly severe punishments because of these zero-tolerance policies. There was one example that you open up with, uh, a case in Virginia. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it involved a, a young man in middle school, Benjamin Ratner, and he had a friend who had experienced suicidal tendencies in the past. I guess that's the best way to put it. And she shows up on Monday and tells him she'd been feeling suicidal over the weekend and that she'd brought a knife with her to school and was thinking about hurting herself. And so his immediate response was, can I have it? And she said, yeah, you can have it. So he goes to her locker and takes out the book binder. There's no indication that he actually saw or touched the knife, but we're told there was a knife inside the book binder. So he takes it and he puts it uh, in his own locker. And News spreads quickly in middle schools, and so uh, within an hour or so, the vice principal had heard about it, and he he calls uh, Benjamin to the office and asks him whether he has the knife, and Benjamin says, yeah, it's in my locker. And I think 
moment number one that's so important here, the principal doesn't say, stay here, let me go get it. He says, Benjamin, will you go get it for me? And Benjamin says, sure. So the principal is clearly not seeing Benjamin as a threat. He understands this boy isn't a threat. So Benjamin goes, gets the binder, brings it back. And when he hands it over to the principal, the principal says, you know, you did the right thing, Benjamin, but I'm sorry, I've got to suspend you. At this moment in time, I'm thinking that Benjamin is a little bit confused, but he doesn't feel that his educational career has come to an end. He probably goes home, complains to his mother a bit, um, but his mother gets a call in the next day or so and says, we need you to come down to central administration because we're going to expel your son for the rest of the school year. And in fact, that's exactly what they did. So a young boy who did you know, everything the school asked him to do that posed no threat to the school and was literally trying to protect the safety and life of one of his friends or was expelled for doing so. I just can't find a reason or rationale for how that makes sense. So in the terms of, of zero tolerance, circumstances don't matter. The fact that he had a weapon and it was, uh, you know, something that he was able to get when the principal asked, that was enough for the school board to decide or rather the superintendent decide that this boy should be expelled? That was enough. They said that the rules say suspensions for weapons, and we don't care whether you're doing the right thing, the wrong thing. It was accidental, unaccidental. There was a weapon in your possession, and therefore we must uh, expel you. Uh, and in fact, there was another story, which is in, in my book, uh, in, in Tennessee, where the young man, it wasn't his knife. Someone had left it in his car. He, he didn't know it was there, uh, didn't remember it was there, whatever. And the school did not contest the fact that he didn't know the knife was there, and they still expelled him. And during the arguments over this case, the school went so far as to say that uh, initially, even if the school valedictorian was walking down the hall and someone slipped a knife unknowingly into their book bag, that would be a rule violation, and they would have the authority to expel the student for that. There's just no common sense to that type of policy making. Now, these are two examples of weapons, but there are cases where children are being suspended and expelled for minor issues. Can you walk us through some of those examples? Yeah, I mean, there's not, I wouldn't say there's a lot of statutes out, that, out there that say you must expel a student for talking out in class. But there are certainly statutes out there that authorize schools to do so. So Mississippi had a statute, uh, for instance, that says that uh, districts can expel uh, habitually disruptive students. And they define habitually disruptive as being three instances of disruption in school. South Carolina currently has a statute that says the school can expel a student for any behavior that is prohibited by school board policy. So if the school board writes down, you cannot sneeze in class, the state statute grants them the authority to expel that student. And how do we get to this point? Can you walk us through the history of when you saw school boards around the country adopting these zero tolerance policies? Part of it is tied up in the get tough on crime movement. Uh, which also intersected with some unfortunate tragedies that occurred in schools that made national news, um, Columbine being one. But uh, shortly before Columbine, Congress passed legislation mandating that schools uh, expel students who brought drugs or weapons to school. Now that, you know, we could debate whether that's a good idea, bad idea. I think that's a, that's a reasonable approach. But what states did was say, well, while we're at it, while we're at changing our statutes to suspend and expel students for that, let's just add some other stuff in there. Let's add habitually disruptive. Let's add violation of any school board rule for that matter. Um, so we got a little bit carried away there. The second major step is that uh, schools 
are under a tremendous amount of pressure to perform on standardized tests. Over the past 15 years uh, of No Child Left Behind, which Congress recently amended, but over the past 15 years, we've put higher and higher stakes on test scores. And, and schools are stretched to the limits. And any child who seems to be interfering with the school's ability to do its job, or for that matter, maybe they're not even interfering, they're just not that good of a student. And if they score poorly, they're going to, you know, have potentially bring down our scores. Now, those schools have incentive to remove those kids as quickly as possible. So I think what we found was a perfect storm, you know, some, some zero tolerance policies on one side and uh, a lot of school pressure to perform on the other and, and not enough resources in the middle to deal with behavioral problems that schools have. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Derek Black. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of a new book, Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Uh, Derek, I wanted to turn to, um, we talked about when zero tolerance policies started to become more uh, commonplace. But what about the use of, of, of law enforcement that are located um, you know, at these schools, these, the idea of a school resource officer, SROs, how has that um, changed the dynamic of when kids are you know, mis- misbehaving in school and how it could escalate to being arrested? Yeah, so there's a couple of things going on there. I think the school resource officer is potentially a more difficult problem to solve simply because there's a money incentive there. After the Columbine uh, tragedy, there be, there was a lot more federal money available um, and also state money available to put SROs in the school, right? So we've got money there. Why not spend it, right? But there's also the sort of real visceral fear that parents uh, experience that they say, you know, if there's a minuscule chance of my child being harmed at school. I want a, a police officer there. But I would emphasize that schools still to this day remain the safest place kids can be. Kids are more likely to get hurt at home fighting with their brother or sister or just messing in their parents' closet um, than they are at school. So schools, notwithstanding the tragedies we've seen, are still safe places. And these school resource officers, as you as you point out, they come with burdens as well as benefits. And the burden is, is that children are going to be confronted with violence, that people who are not properly trained to deal with children are, are, are going to overreact. And, and just in the last month, I've written three stories about either new lawsuits against states and school districts for excessive force by officers or cases going to trial. And it, it, it's really with the advent of the, of the cell phone is getting documented more and more often. When we talk about zero tolerance policies, I mean, who are the students that are most affected by this, that are disproportionately affected? Well, you know, the interesting fact is that a lot of civil rights advocates initially thought that a zero-tolerance approach might actually bring down racial disparities, right? So that if everyone is punished the same, white and African-American students will have similar discipline rates, potentially. But what we found is that racial bias doesn't happen at the principal's often office as often as it happens at the classroom level. So prior to zero-tolerance, if you had a teacher who perpetually, you know, referred African-American children for low-level stuff to the office, the principal could counteract that. He could send them back or say, you know, we're we're not going to punish them for that. But in the age of of zero tolerance, where we have board policies and state policies mandating punishment, if the teacher, for racially biased or other reasons, sends a kid to the office, they're going to get in trouble for it. So what we've seen is that zero tolerance has amplified 
the disparities uh, in, in school suspensions and expulsions. And, you know, across the nations, a- African-Americans are two to six times as likely to be suspended or expelled uh, as white students. And these are the same kids that we see in the so-called school to prison pipeline? Yeah, that's correct. The decision to suspend a child one time makes it far more likely that that same child will be suspended or expelled in the next year. And that drastically increases uh, dropout rates, that drastically increases interaction with the juvenile justice system, it drastically increases uh, high school dropout unemployment. And so, yes, one act to suspend or expel a student has this long-term ripple effect. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, we're speaking with Derek Black, professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law, author of Ending Zero Tolerance, the Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. You know, Derek, I should have asked you this earlier. What made you interested in exploring how these policies have impacted um, student outcomes through the years? Well, you know, I had an unusual random experience early in my career, which was uh, there was a group of about 10 boys who had been expelled from a school in Tennessee, and they just needed anyone who would take their case to take it. And so I had a slow time in my case docket at the moment, and so I went down there and represented them. Uh, the first thing that struck me odd about this was, you know, gangs are not good, I understand that, but simply being in a gang is not the violation of any school rule or even criminal law for that matter. Uh, and, and in effect, the school really had simply said, well, one of these kids has done something wrong, and we're just going to expel them all. And I went down there and advocated for those those young men as, as best I could. And in fact, got one of the school administrators, the principal, to admit that one of the boys who had been uh, expelled was not even present at the place where the altercation had occurred. And I thought, well, you know what? I couldn't save uh, all 10 boys, but maybe I saved one of them. And you know what? They expelled him anyway. And it just blew my mind that they had decided that they were done with these boys. And it didn't matter what the law said. It didn't matter what these boys had done or not done. Uh, they wanted to get rid of them. And, you know, that sort of propelled me on to a, to a lot of research over the years. And also uh, sympathy to the communities who, who really are struggling with this on, on a daily basis. Uh, you know, the fight to end zero tolerance really is a grassroots movement that, you know, m- mothers and fathers and local communities across the nation have said, you know, we've got to come together and stand in opposition to this. And this is a movement that's been going on uh, for well over a decade now, but it, it's really only now starting to gain a little bit of traction. And what has been the catalyst to that, that people are, are realizing that this is not the way to be, um, I guess, uh, handling uh, behavior issues that pop up, some less severe, some more severe? Well, I think we've gotten a lot better social science over the last decade that's helped us understand how counterproductive uh, suspension and expulsion is. That's one. Uh, number two is, is sort of the political pressure that, that some families have been able to, to exert. Um, but I think, to be quite honest, that schools themselves dug themselves into such a deep hole that they began to realize, some of them began to realize, we cannot operate an educational system like this anymore. Four years ago, there were a number of middle schools in the District of Columbia that handed out more suspensions than they had students. A school with 300 students that handed out uh, 480 or 500 suspensions over the course of the year. You can't operate a school system that way. And, you know, 
lots of arrests, right? It is disruptive to suspend and expel that many students. And um, I think they realize that we've got to do something different, right? Um, or our schools are just going to implode on themselves. So I think we've, we've found change coming from a few different places. You're talking with us, and we're here in, in Connecticut, and I know that this has been an issue that um, policymakers and advocates for children have raised in recent years, especially with um, when those started looking at the data, uh, and especially children that were in kindergarten, first, second grade, being suspended. Um, so I'm just curious, when, you, when you've done your research, which states are out there that are actually you know, making some change on the zero tolerance uh, policy and realizing that you know, it only devastates a child's future if they continue to be suspended. Uh, maybe that leads them to drop out, um, you know, and they could end up in, in prison down the road. I would say that we've got a couple of different activities happening at the state level. We've got a few states that have begun to say, if we're talking about pre-K kids, if we're talking about second and third graders, we ought to just take them off the board. There's no good reason to suspend or expel them. So California passed a statute uh, about two years ago banning suspension and expulsion for kids in third grade or lower. A couple other states have done that. So that's a step in the right direction. You know, discipline problems and high discipline rates really occur in, in middle and high school. So, you know, that's not a huge change, but, but it's a step in, in the right direction. We've got a lot of uh, state departments of education that are beginning to invest in uh, positive behavioral supports a lot more. Minnesota is a good example of that. I also know that, that Connecticut uh, has been looking at this issue through, through data pretty closely and has issued some reports. I'm, I'm not sure if they've taken any official action. But I, I think all the states um, know that there's a problem here, but there's a little bit of hesitancy about how exactly to fix the problem um, because there is going to be pushback, right, from, from, from teachers, for instance, that, that maybe misinterpret what this agenda is about, right? Um, if, if what the policy is that we simply say, you cannot suspend and expel students anymore, see you later, we're done, that's actually not going to help anyone, to be, to be honest, right? What we need to do is build a better environment. And stopping suspension and expulsions all alone won't do that. That will just leave teachers saddled with students in the room misbehaving and teachers who are not prepared to deal with that. So we have to start investing in what we call positive behavioral supports that try to find out what's the root of the behavioral problem. Is it something we can fix with social services? Is it something we can fix with counseling? Is it just that the child is experiencing learning problems and we need to address that? So that's one set of strategies. When you think about. And then there's also what we call restorative justice practices that, that help the student better understand their behavior, how they're harming themselves and harming their others, and try to deal with conflict in a civil way. So there are strategies out there, but we have to bring down suspension and expulsion at the same time that we implement those strategies. Otherwise, we're, we're going to make things worse for everyone involved. You mentioned the restorative justice. Here in Connecticut, we have what are known as JRBs or juvenile review boards. And so exactly what you're talking about where uh, community members sit around a table and there's a parent with a child who may have gotten in trouble in school or maybe committed a, a misdemeanor and ways to help the children um, accept what they did was wrong, understand the consequences, but to keep them out of the juvenile court system. Because once they go in there, we hear from advocates and those who work in the, the judicial system that, you know, they're likely to, um, you know, continue to be um, referred back to court and then later um, end up in prison. Yeah, that, that's correct. And so what we have found is this, that in schools that implement these programs well, that we end up having lower suspension rates, lower expulsion rates, and much more positive educational environments. And I think that's the key. Suspension and expulsion doesn't 
just harm the misbehaving student. It harms well-behaved students. Uh, the well-behaved students see the injustice in our current zero-tolerance policies, and they don't see the schools trying to help them. They see the schools trying to hurt their friends, to expel their friends, to send their friends to juvenile justice system. So everyone is harmed by that. But when we deal with, with discipline appropriately, when we try to make a more positive environment, not only are we helping the misbehaving student, we are helping the well-behaved student have the type of environment that they need to learn well. And what's the role of the courts, since I, I did mention um, the court system here in Connecticut and how they collaborate um, with community organizations to try to keep kids out of the juvenile court system. Um, but I was thinking to some of the children, some of the cases you mentioned where kids have find themselves expelled and, and you know, maybe they don't have a parent that knows how to work with an attorney and, and bring this to the court's attention. But if a case like this is before a court, how are they likely to rule? Well, un unfortunately, over the last four decades, courts have become more and more reluctant uh, to intervene in school discipline. Uh, in the 1970s, they were pretty aggressive, but starting in about the 80s, they just began to look the other way. And so policymakers and school uh, boards have had authority to do whatever they want with kids anytime they want. And, you know, I want to be clear. I think that the people on the scene, the teachers, the parents, the students, those are the ones that are in the best position to know what's right to do. But it's always dangerous when there's no limits to authority, right? That no one's looking over your shoulder because then you get in the habit of just doing what you want to do or doing what you think is efficient or expedient. And so my critique of the courts or my idea is not that they should be intervening on a regular basis, but that they need to set the outer boundaries of permissible conduct. So I talked about the statutes, the new ones in California, where they have now said we're not going to uh, expel pre-kindergarten students anymore. Well, I would put to you that a court who seriously looked at the issues and the evidence uh, could have long ago said that there is no legitimate basis for a public school in the United States of America to kick a pre-kindergarten child out of school because they're disruptive. That's what five-year-old kids do. They disobey. They disrupt, they talk, they try to learn the limits of social interaction and boundaries. But our courts haven't done that. And when our courts don't step in and at least set some outer boundaries, uh, I think that schools stop looking at children as individuals. They stop looking at whether the student intentionally violated the rule, whether the student uh, is has problems going on in their life that are interacting here. So um, what I really call for is courts to help schools do their job better, not for courts to do schools' jobs for them. I want to thank Derek Black, who joined us via Skype. He's professor of law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and author of the new book, Ending Zero Tolerance, The Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. Derek, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll learn about efforts by the state of Connecticut to keep kids out of its juvenile justice system. That's next. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, 2017 marks 50 years since a U.S. Supreme Court decision put an end to laws banning interracial marriage. On the next Where We Live, we learn about the civil rights case Loving versus Virginia. Has society's perceptions really changed? We'll ask interracial couples living in Connecticut that question and more. Join us on the next Where We Live. That's Thursday. Now, today we've been talking about zero tolerance policies and how they influence the school to prison pipeline. Earlier, we heard from University of South Carolina School of Law professor Derek Black. His recent book is called Ending Zero Tolerance, the Crisis of Absolute School Discipline. 
Right now, I want to welcome to the program Jeff Vanderplug. He's vice president for mental health initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute. He joins us to talk about Connecticut's school-based diversion initiative called SBDI. It's a program that's been working to keep students out of the juvenile justice system. Jeff, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me on the show. So for our listeners who don't know about the Institute, tell us about what work you're doing there. So the Child Health and Development Institute is involved in three main areas of work, all having to do with children and their, and their health and their well-being. The first area is children's health care, so pediatric health care. And the second area is children's mental health care. And then the third area is early childhood initiatives. So we oversee a number of initiatives that are both federally and state-funded, um, as well as philanthropically funded. And really the overall goal for our work is to improve the health and well-being of all of Connecticut's children. Our listeners were hearing about zero tolerance policies when they came to be and the impact of those. And so when we talk about SBDI, um, how that influences the school-to-prison pipeline, can you give us a background? Sure. The early days of school-based diversion initiative, I'll refer to it as, as SBDI from now on, it goes back to well, about 2009, MacArthur Foundation Models for Change Initiative uh, awarded a grant to the Judicial Branch Court Support Services Division. And the focus of the grant was on a number of areas of juvenile justice reform, one area of which was reduction of school-based court referrals. And this was in response to some data both nationally as well as in the state of Connecticut showing that a significant proportion of all juvenile court referrals were based on incidents that took place in a school. So we know from the data in Connecticut now, for example, for the last several years, between 15 and 20 percent of all juvenile court referrals came from schools. And when you think about exclusionary discipline, you also consider not just school-based arrests or court referrals, but also expulsions and out-of-school suspensions. Really, you're talking about anything that takes a student out of the routine, normal academic environment and takes them away from normal instruction. Um, and what we're finding through our school-based diversion initiative is that we're seeing a significant reduction in the number of kids who are being referred to the juvenile courts among schools that participate in SBDI. So right now, we're involved in 18 schools across several school districts, and we're demonstrating reduction of about 33% in school-based court referrals among uh, fully implementing schools in our work, and an increase of about 42% in referrals to our mobile crisis service in the state. It's otherwise known as EMPS, or Emergency Mobile Psychiatric Services. Mm -hmm. And so what we're demonstrating is a reduction in the number of kids who are entering the juvenile courts and instead, as an alternative response, a rapid referral to a behavioral health that can stabilize this crisis situation and then address the underlying behavioral health needs that may exist for young people who would have, who would have otherwise ended up in being involved with the juvenile courts. So it sounds like um, this project at these 18 schools, it's no longer looking at the child as the problem, but trying to understand what's going on in his or her life and how to respond to that so that they, um, it's not like a revolving door. That really is a huge part of it. I think uh, one of the underlying premises of SBDI is that many kids who come into contact with the juvenile justice system have diagnosable behavioral health needs as well as a history of trauma exposure. So things like abuse or neglect or witnessing or experiencing violence in their community or in their home. And so what SBDI tries to do is to help the adults in the building think differently about those students. One of the things that we like to talk about in SBDI is helping school personnel like teachers and school resource officers ask the question or change the question from what's wrong with this student to what happened to the student. And that's a very different question to ask. And it gets school personnel thinking differently about the appropriate responses. 
So when we do our SBDI work, we're primarily working with the adults in the school building who are making the decisions about whether to send this young person who's acting out back home or to call the police. Or in our case, we like to see more of those students being referred to the behavioral health system because we think that's a much more effective alternative for them. You mentioned teachers and school resource officers. What about principals? Are they part of the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I think when we talk with schools, we often find that varying levels of alignment and agreement between school administrators and teachers and school resource officers and social workers about the appropriate ways to discipline students. And one point that we like to make when we talk about SBDI is we're not talking about failing to t hold students accountable for behavior problems that occur in the classroom. That's not really what this initiative is about. What this is about is focusing more on what are the underlying needs and what are the most effective ways to address disciplinary sh issues that, that occur in schools. And so principals definitely come into play. Many times it's the principals who are setting the disciplinary policy or at least the climate around disciplinary policy in every school. When we talk about these students, who are we talking about? Are they you know, predominantly children of color in our cities? What we know from the data, both nationally and in Connecticut, is that there continues to be an issue around disproportionate minority contact in the juvenile justice system. And there are a lot of really important efforts going on to address that issue. So that's certainly one population of students that are really disproportionately impacted by juvenile court referrals. The other group that research tells us is impacted by this are kids with special education and medical and mental health needs. Uh, those students tend to experience much higher rates of expulsion, suspension, and arrest than their peers. So we really try to pay particular attention when we work with schools about those populations, knowing that there are disproportionately high rates for those youth. So take us into the process. So if um, Name one of the schools that you may be working with, school district. Sure. So we just had an event last week. The governor came out to one of our participating schools at Wallace Middle School, which is in the Waterbury Public School District. And uh, to take you through the process, one of the first things that we do is actually has to do with school selection. You know, we don't, we don't want to be in schools that don't want us there. So we look for three things when we're trying to select the most appropriate school to do this work in. The first thing is, do you have an intrinsic motivation or an interest in working on the issue of school-based arrest? Do you, are you familiar with your data? Do you think it's an issue? Is it something you want to tackle and try to take on in your school? The second thing that we look at is need. Uh, we don't want to be in the school that had three arrests last year. We want to be in the school that had 33 arrests last year because we're only able to work with a small number of schools, relatively speaking, every year. Um, in a pretty intensive intervention or program. So we want to be in the schools that have the most need. The third fact we look at is capacity. So we want to make sure that we're working with a school that's able to take on the work of extra meetings, um, working with their administration, with their school resource officers, opening up time for training, making sure that they can do the work. Um, if there are a lot of other things going on in the school, it's probably not a great fit for this work. So if we feel if we have interest and need and capacity, we have a really great chance of being successful. So how does, how does this get paid for in these schools? So right now, this is state-funded. Um, we have an interesting arrangement. There are four state agencies that are involved in funding this work. It's the State Department of Education, the Judicial Branch's Court Support Services Division, the Department of Children and Families, and the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. So those four state agencies are, are funding the work. There was some additional money that came in through the governor's Second Chance Society package of reforms. 
So we're really excited to see the expansion of the work associated with that. And I think what's important to note from our perspective is that there are many benefits of doing this work, one of which is, of course, better outcomes for students. We find that kids who get their behavioral health needs met tend to get in trouble less over time. We find that schools really respond well to the work, that it's truly a benefit for them. And then I think the third is cost savings. So we talk about the costs and the money that you put into the program, but by keeping kids from being arrested, by keeping kids out of the juvenile justice system and out of incarceration, we actually believe that there are significant cost savings associated with that. So the diversion principle um, from our perspective is important in terms of outcomes, but also in terms of costs. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking with Jeff Vanderplug, Vice President for Mental Health Initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute. The Institute's been working with schools uh, with this school-based diversion initiative called SBDI to reduce the number of kids that are sent into the juvenile justice system, and they've been seeing a reduction. Um, Jeff, I'm curious, you know, we were talking about resources, and, you know, obviously if you're making the investment in the beginning, you're going to see greater outcomes in the end. But at the same time, um, you know, with our state uh, continuing our budget crisis um, and deficits, you know, how likely is it that this program could expand? It's a great question. I I don't know. I I wish I could answer that question. (laughs) I would sleep a little bit better at night if I could, I think. Um, It is a tough fiscal time. um, And I think that there are significant challenges uh, facing Connecticut. And I think that as a state, we need to be smart about what we're investing in. Um, I think the first first thing that I think about is can we demonstrate outcomes? I think the programs that are funded through the state uh, need to be able to demonstrate that they're doing what they're intended to do, which is part of the reason that we're excited about SBDIs because we're able to collect data from the schools that we work with, from the state agencies that we work with, and demonstrate that there are significant outcomes associated with this work. Um, so we're hopeful that in the coming uh, budget that's going to come out in the next couple of months, um, that SBDIs can going to continue to be funded. We think it's a good investment for Connecticut. And when you look at the success of the program, um, what about the the situations where, um, despite the interventions, there are, um, are youth that are, are still, you know, getting into trouble and they're getting referred into the juvenile justice system? You know, where can this program be strengthened? That's a good question. I think um, one of the things that we're challenged with is that we tend to work with schools for a year or maybe two years at a time. And so one of the questions that we struggle with is how do we sustain this work in a school after we leave and we move on to the next set of schools? Uh, So uh, some of the things that we try to do to address that, first of all, we continue to look at the data after we're gone. So we look at school-based court referrals over time, two years, three years, four years removed from the SBDI program. The second thing that we're really looking into is uh, establishing a learning community or a virtual learning academy among our current participating schools as well as our alumni network of SBDI schools because we want to be able to continue to send the messages and share lessons learned and share best practices between schools for how to best sustain the work to make sure that they're continuing to get good outcomes for students. And then I think the third thing that you can do is you can always go back. Uh, there are some schools, if, if the numbers start to creep up on the school-based arrest side, we can always make a phone call to that school and say, listen, you know, we're noticing what, something in the data we'd like to offer to come back again so that we continue to work on these issues. Uh, so I think it's we're always thinking about how do you sustain the work. And then on the individual student level, I think we're encouraged by some of the data that demonstrates kids who are referred to mobile crisis services compared to young people who are referred to the courts 
tend to have significantly lower recidivism rates or re-referral rates to the court system over time. And that's true even after you control for things like prior court involvement or age or gender or race and ethnicity. So we're encouraged by the data demonstrating that, in fact, addressing underlying behavioral health needs does r reduce recidivism rates over time. And how does staff turnover impact the effectiveness of this program at these schools, which can have lower resources, high, more uh, high-stress environment working with certain populations? Well, you referred to it earlier when you asked the question about principals and how do they kind of come into play. And we find that superintendents turn to, tend to turn over quite a bit. Principals tend to turn over quite a bit. Um, social workers and school psychologists tend to stick around a little bit longer. But what we find is that a lot of disciplinary policy and the disciplinary climate in the school does tend to be driven by superintendents and principals. So uh, turnover is an issue. Sometimes you, you might find yourself in a situation where you start looking at the data, you realize that a school we worked with a couple of years ago is, is not sustaining the work, not sustaining the outcomes that we had achieved. And then you may find out that there's a new principal in place, so maybe we need to make an outreach phone call and consider coming back for some additional work. And I understand the school-based diversion initiative, SBDI, it's a model for other states. Can you tell us how you're working um, to influence this work elsewhere? Yeah, we're, we're really excited about this. And I mentioned earlier that this is not just a Connecticut-based issue. When you look at the national data, the school-based court referral rates are significantly high in, in a lot of other states. And through our partnership with the MacArthur Foundation, we've been able to work with uh, places like the Policy Research Associates. Uh, they are a, a firm located up in New York that has worked closely with the MacArthur Foundation over the years to establish a network of states working in the juvenile justice reform area. And through that partnership, we've been able to provide some consultation in states like West Virginia, Nevada, um, as well as Wisconsin. And in the next year or two, we're very excited. Uh, we collaborated with a grant uh, on a grant with Policy Research Associates to do some intensive work uh, with 16 schools in the states of Michigan and Louisiana. So that's coming up over the next couple of years, where we'll be providing some SBDI consultation uh, in, uh, in other states. I've been speaking with Jeff Vanderplug, Vice President for Mental Health Initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute. Jeff, thanks for your time. Thank you. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WMPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. For more about our show, go to WMPR.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and thanks for listening.